All right, well, good morning again, everybody, and thank you for being here today on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday. You know, you'd never know it by the snow that we've been uh, getting and the cold, cold weather, but six weeks from now is Easter Sunday. So, uh, that's yeah, that's pretty exciting, but as you can see, we're going to need some room, so be in prayer with us for what that's going to look like. Are we going to need to add another service? I don't know. Of course, we gave you 915 as an option as well. So let's just be praying for that day that God would do something mighty and uh, be praying for who you can invite. Who can you bring? We want to be bringers uh, to church. So be be thinking of who you can bring. And we want to say a big welcome to all of you that are joining us online through YouTube and Facebook, perhaps our Vimeo page as well. We're so thankful that you are with us. If you're here in the room, you're welcome to pull out your smartphone for just a moment and check in on Facebook, share the YouTube video or the Facebook live video, and let everybody know that you are worshiping here at Calvary, where uh, our mission is pretty simple. If you're new here, it's pretty easy and repeatable, but it's what Jesus told us. He said, love God, love people, and change the world. And so that's what we're all about here at Calvary. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. And as you may have saw on the video, we are in week number five of our series in the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew has been making his case for Jesus in the marketplace that is full of ideas and, uh, and thought processes and religions. He offers Jesus as the one true Messiah, as the way to heaven. And so uh, the first few weeks we've studied his uh, family tree and his lineage. We've looked at his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph. We studied the Magi and how they came and opened gifts and were filled with joy and, and all of that. And of course, at the end of last week, we looked at how uh, Matthew described Jesus as a new and better Moses. So in the Old Testament, uh, Moses led and liberated the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. They were in bondage for over 400 years. They were in slavery to Egypt. But Jesus came not to liberate the Israelites from Egypt, but to liberate all of humanity from slavery to sin. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? He's a new and better Moses. And so today we're going to move in to chapter 3, and we're going to meet one of Jesus' relatives who also happens to be one of the most fascinating characters that we find in the Old Testament. But before we do that, uh, perhaps you already have your, your uh, finger in Matthew chapter 3. Do you have your copy of God's Word with you today? Let me hear you. Okay, that's good. If you don't, you can download an app on your phone. Uh, but we should bring our Bibles to church um, every single week. Uh, so put your finger in Matthew chapter 3. But before we read there, turn back a few pages to the last chapter of the Old Testament, God spoke through a prophet named Malachi, and uh, when he was done speaking through Malachi, God did not speak through one of his prophets for over 400 years. So I want us to take a look to see what he spoke through the prophet Malachi. Let's see what he had to say in chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, literally the last couple of verses in your Old Testament. God speaking through Malachi, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents 
to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So God sends this important message through the prophet Malachi to speak to his people. Then again, he goes silent, at least through his prophets, for over 400 years. So I'm sure that the people of Israel, they probably held on to these last and final words uh, for, for centuries. Malachi tells Israel that there is coming a great and dreadful day. A day that will bring salvation, but a day that will bring salvation or uh, salvation and judgment. But before that great and, dead, and dreadful day, he's going to send an Elijah, an Elijah-like prophet, an Elijah who's kind of uh, out there, kind of eccentric and outspoken. He's going to come and prepare the way. Well, prepare the way for who? Prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah. Prepare the way for Jesus. Prepare the way for God's salvation and prepare the way for God's judgment. That's what the life and ministry of Jesus was all about, wasn't it? Salvation to all who had received Jesus, but judgment to all those who would reject Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, he has this way of forcing people to make a decision. Is it going to be a great day for you or a dreadful day for you? Right? Salvation is coming to your house or judgment. You choose. And Malachi said that an Elijah-like prophet is going to come and prepare the way. So with this uh, scripture, with this uh, prophecy from Malachi as the backdrop and context, we're going to transition to Matthew chapter 3. You'll remember Matthew chapter 2 was the visit from the Magi, and then Joseph took his family down to Egypt to, uh, to save his life from the evil Herod, and, uh, and then now he's brought their family back to Egypt. Now we fast forward from chapter 2 to chapter 3, almost 30 years, okay? So we're jumping 30 years uh, into the future from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of Matthew, and here's what it reads, Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, in those days... Now, in those days, uh, often the Old Testament prophets would use that phrase in those days to kind of uh, highlight that this is a meaningful, very purposeful moment in history. Okay, so in those days, John the Baptist came. Okay, so he's the prophet, the Elijah-like prophet that Malachi was talking about. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we are introduced to a man named John the Baptist. Many of you perhaps know that John the Baptist was actually a relative of Jesus. If you were here in December, we learned about uh, the song of Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptist's dad. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were very elderly when uh, the angel Gabriel came and visited Zechariah while he was doing his duty in the temple and said, hey, old man, you're going to give birth supernaturally, not you, actually, your wife. <laughs> that would be really supernatural. Uh, you and your wife are going to have a son, and uh, he's going to do some special things. In fact, he's going to be so special that he's going to be the forerunner for the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to make the path straight for Jesus, and he's going to be an Elijah type of prophet. So John the Baptist is that Elijah type of prophet. He's a very fascinating character. And, and his name, John the Baptist, is not describing 
the denomination that he's affiliated with. Okay, uh, the uh, Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, whatever it might be. Of course, they had not formed back in that time. But uh, this word, John the Baptist, was not describing the denomination he was affiliated with. It was describing what he did. Uh, your version, your translation of Scripture might say John the Baptizer. John the Baptist. He went around preaching, repent, confess your sins, and then he baptized people. And the Greek word for baptism is baptizo. Baptizo. That literally means to dip, to sink, to submerge, to plunge. And by the way, that's why when we baptize people, we take them all the way under the water, representing death, just like Jesus was buried. And then we, then we are like Jesus, we are raised to new life. Uh, so it symbolizes the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So John could have been called John the Dipper. He could have been called John the Plunger. But even back then, it just didn't have the same ring to it, did it, as John the Baptist. That just kind of plays better out in the market, right? John the Baptist sounds a lot better than John the Plunger. But uh, So John the Baptizer, John the Baptist was baptizing people even before people turned to Jesus. Even before Jesus uh, died on the cross and was resurrected, he was already baptizing people. So some Bible scholars... Uh, tell us that it was a fairly common practice in the days of the law, in the Old Testament days, that people would be uh, baptized, submerged underwater, before returning to a state of ceremonial cleanness after some sort of uh, unclean infraction or something. Uh, it's also thought by some scholars that Gentiles would be asked to be baptized before joining the Jewish faith. So John was applying this uh, Jewish practice of washing to a more meaningful and spiritual sense of the word, spiritual sense of being made clean and, and, and being washed clean, coming to a place of repentance and renewal in our relationship with the Lord. That's what his baptism was all about. See, many people thought they were good. They thought they were following the Lord when in fact they, they weren't. They had strayed away from an authentic relationship with the Lord. See, there are a lot of people even today who think they're good. They think they're in. They go to church. They check that church box. They think they're in, but they need a fresh baptism. Not a, bapt not a baptism in water, but a baptism in their life, a baptism in their heart. See, John arrives on the scene and is totally unconventional. He was eccentric. He was radical, and he called people out. Repent. He called people out. You're not right. Hey, Jewish person. Hey, Israelite. Hey, insider. You think you're good. You go to church. You might even read Christian books and watch TBN and Daystar. You might, you might even tithe a little bit here and there. You might look like a Christian, but the truth is you don't really know him. You don't have an authentic relationship with the Lord. So John called people, even insiders, he called them to repentance. He called them to evaluate their relationship with God. 
Is this relationship thing with God that you claim to have, is it real? Or are you just playing a game? Is this relationship with the Lord real? What does your prayer life really look like? Is it filled with, with power and passion? Hey, I wonder if your private life matches your public persona. See, John the Baptist had this amazing way of just calling people to repentance. Do you really have any sort of relationship with the Lord? Can you worship outside of Sunday when you don't have the worship band? He had this, this way of exposing the gap between what was authentic and what was fake. And his unconventional approach actually worked. You know, there was a lot of people that came to realize that, man, I do need to repent. Man, I've been missing the mark. I need to repent. I need to be baptized. John's message was all about repentance and preparing the way for Jesus. And transparently, the message of repentance isn't one that I actively go seeking after. Right? When, when I hear, hey, this week's message is going to be on repentance, I don't go running to that church to hear about what's wrong with me and how I need to repent. Perhaps you're like that too. You don't like to be told what's wrong with you and why you need to repent. Most of us don't like that, do we? We don't like to even be told what to do. But all throughout Scripture, God sent prophets like John the Baptist to call people to repentance. All the way back to the Old Testament, Moses called the Israelite people to repentance. God sent a man named Jonah to the city of Nineveh to what? To call them to repentance. He used people like Elijah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and on and on and on to call people to repentance. I read a story earlier this week about a rabbi who was walking along with some of his students and one of these students asked the rabbi, when should a person repent? The rabbi replied, you should repent the very last day of your life. Well, the student, obviously puzzled, uh, questioned the rabbi. Well, rabbi, uh, how do we know, how can we be sure which of our days will be the last? And to that, the rabbi smiled and said, well, then the answer is simple. Repent today. Repent now. Today is a good day to repent. Today's a good day for repentance. Many people say, well, I'm going to try harder. Next time, I'm going to give it a little more effort. I think I'll turn over a new leaf. Repentance is more than just that, isn't it? It's more than just trying a little harder. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. You might want to write that down in your blue notebooks as you're taking notes. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Repentance happens when we get to the place internally that says, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm tired of being chained to that sin. I'm tired of being chained to that iniquity, that unrighteousness. We have a change of mind that is so powerful, has such an effect that that change of mind leads to a change of direction. Repentance is more than just being sorry. 
Repentance means I was headed this way. I was living life for myself. I was selfish and full of myself. But now I'm rejecting sin and I'm repenting of the sin and I'm walking in a new and better direction. By the way, I'm not saying this is a better direction than you guys. You guys are a great direction too, okay? <laughs> Where we, it's more than just uh, something that we say. It's, it's more than words. It's, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. But we live in a society that doesn't seem like or doesn't feel like we need to change or we need to repent. You're good just the way you are. Don't let anybody tell you that you need to change. You're fine. You're just a product of your environment anyway. So if anybody has a problem with the way you are, that's on them, not you. That's exactly the kind of attitude that stirred John the Baptist to call out complacency. That stirred him to call out the status quo and help people recognize their utter and complete dependence on the Lord. See, we've been so accustomed to tolerating things that are completely contrary to what God has for us in His Word, completely contrary to God's standards. God is calling us up. God is calling us higher. God is calling us to be set apart from the world and set apart for Him. See, many people love the idea of Jesus being Lord just as long as I can keep doing some of the things that I want to do. See, I like the idea of adding and sprinkling in some Jesus, but, but please don't take that from me. I really like doing that and participating in that activity. See, many of us, we like to add Jesus but not subtract the sin. Okay, I'll say that again. <laughs> we like the idea, we want to add Jesus, but we forget to subtract the sin. Yes, Lord, I love you, I want to follow you, but not in this area. Lord, leave me alone over here. Let me dabble in, in, in this thing over here or that thing over there. Jesus paid such a high price for our salvation. He paid the ultimate price. And so our response can't be to be part-time followers. We're either all in or all out. I mean, you've heard us say it before. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. I read a story of a man who was praying with his pastor one day. And they, they did this quite often. The man and his pastor would pray together. And uh, as they were praying together, the pastor heard the man praying this prayer that he would often pray during some of their prayer times. This man would often pray, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. But this time, upon hearing uh, this man pray this prayer once again, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life, the pastor interrupted and said, and kill the spider, Lord. <laughs> kill the spider. Receive repentance means that we allow God to clear the cobwebs and kill the spider. See, many times we ask 
for God to forgive us of our sin, but we leave inside of us this active temptation that's still working and try to pull us away. We, we leave room. We leave the source of temptation inside of us. Repentance is turning in a new direction. I was headed this way. Now I'm headed that way. God demands and requires repentance. But how many of you know that God is also loving and patient? Can I get a better amen for a loving and patient God? Come on, he is good. He is patient. Maybe you have had some sort of unfortunate experience at a church, perhaps with a religious person, perhaps with a, a pastor or whatever it might be, or a mom or a dad. And so you have this misconception that God is some mean, old, angry man in heaven who doesn't give a rip about you. How could he care for me? Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, he does demand and require repentance. But he's loving and he's patient. Check out what Peter had to say about the matter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. By the way, context, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Okay, many thought that, hey, what's taking God so long? What's taking Jesus so long to come back and return to the earth? Uh, Peter said, the Lord's not slow in keeping that promise. He's going to do it. As some understand slowness, instead, he is patient. He's patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is a patient God. He's so patient, in fact, that the reason he's delayed sending his son Jesus to capture his church and his bride is to give more time for more people to come to repentance. That is a loving and patient God. Amen, somebody? I have to be transparent here. It's a good thing that he's God and I'm not. Because I'm not near as patient as our Heavenly Father. Man, if, if I was God, I would have been done with this thing a whole, a whole long time ago, right? But God is loving and compassionate and patient, willing that none should perish. But you should know this too, you're not promised tomorrow. So today is a good day to repent. You should decide today, I'm going to follow Jesus. Make sure you don't leave today without making that commitment to follow Jesus. All right, so let's go back to Matthew uh, chapter 3. Let's pick up and read a little bit more about John the Baptist. Pick it up at verse 3, chapter 3. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Of course, Isaiah centuries earlier prophesied, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes, check this out, were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts, and wild honey. Doesn't that sound delicious, somebody? It's noon. You're ready for lunch. How does locust and honey sound for you today? <laughs> uh, John was a colorful character, to say the least. He had some shock value when you saw him. He was very striking. He literally lived in the wilderness by himself. He was a loner who hung out in the wilderness by himself. He wore camel's hair for clothes. He ate locust 
wild honey. He probably kept the Nazarite vow, which means uh, as a grown man, probably in his 30s, he's never shaved. Can you imagine? Never shaved. This would, uh, this would be like Tom Hanks in, in Castaway, but like really, really, really extreme. Okay? You can imagine how uh, long his hair and, and beard probably was. This was not your typical looking pastor. This was an Elijah type of character that had a striking appearance. And along with the striking appearance matched his striking message. Now compare John the Baptist's striking appearance to the religious leaders of the day who went to extreme lengths to make sure that their external appearance was pristine and clean. They wanted to make sure that their robes made it obvious, their levels of achievement and all the things that they have accomplished and their awards and, and their merits. That's what the people of the day were used to, these pristine-looking Pharisees and Sadducees walking around with their beautiful robes. This guy, John the Baptist, looks nothing like them, does he? This is completely opposite. He looks nothing like the religious elite of the day. In fact, John the Baptist doesn't look like most 21st century American Christians either, does he? See, in some ways, it feels as though we have domesticated Christianity. We are now civilized and proper, and we blend into culture. We take special attention of how we look. We, we want to make sure we look right and we talk right. We're all domesticated now. Don't we look good? John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, Hey, what's up, everybody? I eat locust and have never cut my hair. <laughs> Nowadays, Christianity kind of looks like you and me. We put clean clothes on. We cut our hair, we shave, we blend in pretty well and don't draw a lot of unnecessary attention to ourselves. Now, to be clear, I do advocate for trimming your hair, shaving your beard, wearing clean clothes, okay? You can even uh, eat real food if you want. <laughs> Uh, but we must be careful to, to make sure that in our attempts that we don't over-domesticate the gospel. We don't over-polish Christianity in attempts to, to hope that we connect well with unbelievers. See, my, my greater point is that some of us, we're like the Pharisees. We play it safe, not like John the Baptist who is bold and risky. We like to play it safe and keep things under our control because we think we know what people need and what people want. Pastor Sean and Kelly and I were talking last week in the office. We were discussing that sometimes we uh, like to formulate and package things in a way that we hope will impress unbelievers and draw them in. We're so polished and pristine and and maybe even let a little pride creep in. Hey, come check us out. Come to us. Look at us. All the while, we're supposed to be pointing people to Jesus. What people really need is a life-changing encounter with the Spirit of God. People don't need us to be overly performancy with just the right camera angle and the right lights and all of that, just perfect. 
If that's what's going to draw them in, that's what we're going to have to <laughs> But if we'll just provide an atmosphere for them to meet the presence of the Lord, <laughs> then the burden is off of us. It's on him. We just give him Jesus, right? Let Jesus do what he wants to do in them. That's what the early church was all about, weren't they? They were raw. They were bold. They were authentic men and women who were sold out for Jesus. Remember Carmen? He just passed away this week. Man, that was a bummer. He's one of my favorite Christian music artists growing up. Man, he had this amazing song called Radically Saved. He was radical for Jesus. Amen, Eliana? She's radical for Jesus up here with me. They were sold out. The early church was sold out. They were radically saved. If you're new here, you're probably seeing that, you know, we're working this out uh, as a church. We're, we're finding this balance of being excellent because we serve an excellent God. And, and Scripture says everything we do, we do for the glory of God. In fact, uh, uh, one of the things I like to say to worship teams is Psalm 33.3 says, Play skillfully to the Lord. We're supposed to do things with excellence. In fact, you can look around the world and see that God is a God of systems and order. Scripture tells us that we are to do everything in decency and in order. Also, the Spirit of God is alive and well. The Spirit of God wants to move in you. He wants to radically transform you and give you an incredible encounter of the supernatural kind with the Spirit of God. See, people don't just need a good show. People don't need just a good show. They need something that is alive and passionate and authentic and life-changing. That's what this world really needs. And if you think about it, people really are just looking for authenticity anyways, aren't they? <laughs> we live in a society that is flooded with the counterfeit and the phony. People are exhausted of the inauthentic and the fake. And they're not going to fall for a, a fake Christianity that lacks power and passion. People need the real deal, something that can transform their life. John the Baptist said, hey, check it out. This is who I am. I'm raw. I'm authentic. I'm unplugged. What you see is what you get. That's the kind of person that people are really more attracted to anyways, aren't they? They're not attracted to the fake and the phony. They're looking for something that is real and authentic more than people that act like they have it all together. See, the market is already full and saturated with the cute and the quaint and the Hallmark kind of Christianity. People, I like Hallmark, by the way. Shout out. People want something more than that, though. They need something that's going to really change their life. Now, I'm not saying that we all sell our houses and move to the wilderness, let our hair grow out, wear camel's hair, eat locusts and wild honey. I'm not saying that we do that. But we do need to be like John in this respect. We need to be real. We need to be authentic. Let them see the real you. Let them see the raw, authentic you. Let them see that you too hurt. Let them see that you too have a messed up past. You too have sin in your life. You too have brokenness that Jesus has come to heal and make new. 
See, the world isn't used to that kind of authenticity. There was something fresh and attractive about John the Baptist. The person, the message was just fresh and resonated with people. There's a story of, of a, a small child who was with his dad in church. And uh, one Sunday, sitting in church with his father, he looks up and asks his dad, Hey, dad, what's a real Christian? Can you tell me what a real Christian is? Well, the father replied, A Christian is a person who loves and obeys God. He loves his friends and neighbors. A Christian even loves their enemies and prays for them. A Christian prays often, is kind and gentle and holy. A Christian is more interested to go to, go to heaven than to build earthly riches. All of that and even more, son, is what a Christian really is. The boy puzzled and thought for a minute and then asked dad, hey dad, have I ever seen one of those? <laughs> when was the last time the people around you saw a true follower of Jesus Christ? Someone real, authentic, sold out for the Lord. Someone authentically in love with Jesus. See, here's what I've been praying this week. I've been praying that this remote will work correctly. And I've also been praying that we would stop acting like Christians and start following Jesus. That'd be a good thing to write in your blue notebooks. That we would stop acting like Christians and start following Jesus. What would it look like for us to walk in the power and the presence of the Spirit of God? See, I, I, I grew up in church. I get how to act like a Christian. My parents were pastors. I have grandparents who were pastors and evangelists and were in the ministry. I know the religious speak and the lingo. I know how to go through the motions. What would it look like if we would stop acting like Christians and start following Jesus? Real, authentic relationship with Jesus. I think it was Isaiah that said, not by my might, not by my power, but by the Spirit. By my Spirit, says the Lord. Now, we should be nice. Part of following Jesus means that we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of that stuff. We're not allowed to act like jerks. <laughs> but we should be looking a little bit different than the rest of the crowd. We should be walking in the transformational power of Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he challenges the status quo. His whole life was about exposing people's religiosity. The way he lived, the way he dressed, even the things he ate, it revealed in others how materialistic they were and how they had come to the point that they were so comfortable that they didn't even recognize their need for God. I've got it figured out. I've got the religion, religion thing all figured out. I'm good. See, John the Baptist, his, his actions and his appearance was not really about him at all. It wasn't about, hey, look at me. Look how radical I look. Look how striking my appearance is. 
His actions and, and his appearance said more about others than it did himself. See, that was one of the roles of the, uh, of the Bible's prophets, of God's prophets. They lived such a radical life. They lived in such a radical way that it exposed flaws and sins of God's people, hoping that it would call them back to repentance, back to an authentic, loving relationship with the Lord. See, John the Baptist's entire life, he was living a message of salvation and repentance. His whole life was a living, walking message, a living, walking sermon of salvation and repentance. What a great challenge that we too should live real, authentic, passionate lives for Jesus. Amen? Amen, everybody? Okay, so we're almost done. We're going to look at Matthew 3, verse 5 and 6, and let's find out what happens after he proclaims this message of repentance. Check this out. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So as John preaches this message, people start responding. As John starts proclaiming, repent, turn back to the Lord. People start flocking. They, are, they come in droves. They, come, they leave the towns and the cities. They come out of Jerusalem, Judea. They're coming from all of the regions. They're going out to hear this message. Man, that is a great reminder that the good news of the gospel is contagious. The good news of Jesus is attractive. It's contagious. When people hear the good news that Jesus can save them, that Jesus has a hope and a future for them, that he can give them a new start, a new purpose, they'll start coming. They'll start flocking. And then when they come, they'll get saved. And when they get saved, we'll start doing what John did. We'll start dipping them. We'll start baptizing them, all right? In fact, we just ordered a, a new baptismal tank. Good Lord willing, it'll be here soon. And so uh, be looking for a way that you can be baptized uh, real soon. But of course, uh, people will have opportunity to reject the message as well. I'm sure there were many that rejected John's message. As we lift up Jesus, as we spread the good news, people will reject it. And that's on them. But it's on us to announce the good news of Jesus. It's on us to proclaim the message of hope and truth and life that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, you may have a misconception. Well, I thought that was just the pastor's job. I thought that was just the, the preacher or the prophet. I thought that was just the evangelist's job or the missionary's job. No, it's, it's, it's all of us. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's the priesthood of all believers. That means none of us are exempt from announcing the good news of Jesus. None of us are exempt. Now, here's the, here's the cool thing. Jesus did the hard work, didn't he? He's the one that, that came down, left heaven, lived a sinless, perfect life, gave his life on the cross, experienced such agony and pain, then he resurrected. He did, he did the hard job. It's our job to tell people about it. It's our job to announce the good news. It's our job to advance the gospel of Jesus. How are people supposed to know about Jesus unless you tell them? 
And someone told you. Someone told you, it could have been last week, last year, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Someone came and told you about a Jesus who loves them, who has a plan, who has a purpose for them. So we are all called to announce. In fact, why don't you just look at your neighbor right next to him, look at him in the eye and tell him, hey, you're an announcer. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. You're an announcer. You are called to announce the good news of Jesus. Jesus sent his followers to announce the good news of Jesus. In fact, at the end of the gospel, according to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 8, he writes out the, the great commission that Jesus gave his followers. He said, go into all the world. Go everywhere and spread the good news. Go into all the world and announce about me and, and how I've come to bring life and hope and salvation. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Spreading the good news of Jesus and making disciples. So he did the hard work. Our job is just to announce. Our job is to just keep offering Jesus. Keep offering the hope and life that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And when they come and meet Jesus, when they see that he's the real deal, they'll flock from everywhere. They'll come from all over. They'll come to not meet us, but to meet Jesus. They'll come from Jerusalem. They'll come from Judea. They'll come from Thermont and Frederick and Mount Airy and Woodsboro and Walkersville and Hagerstown and Middletown and Myersville and from everywhere. They'll come. They'll flock from everywhere to hear of a God who saves, who loves, who has a plan, who has a purpose for their lives. Isn't that good news, everybody? It's our job to announce. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the gladness all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward tis our Lord's command. Come on, say it with me. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And if he has saved you, can you say a big amen today? Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are God who saves. We bless you. We praise your name. Thank you, Lord. Okay, right there in your seat, I want you to take a moment. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. What is the Spirit of God speaking to you right now in this moment? We've given you a story about this radical, eccentric, out there prophet, John the Baptist. What is the word of God spoken to your heart today? Maybe like some of John's listeners, you thought you were in. And I thought I was good. I've checked the box of going to church, but maybe my relationship lacks passion and power and fire. Maybe right now you need to repent of going through the motions. You need to repent of just... So right there in your seat, maybe just ask the Lord to forgive you. Lord, would you forgive us for just going through the motions? We want our relationship to be new and fresh and hot and passionate for you. Maybe today you've been challenged that you have not been announcing the good news of Jesus. You've kept the good news to yourself. Maybe at one time you were passionate. And everybody could tell that God had done something great in your life. But lately, it's kind of waned. 
and you've grown complacent about spreading the good news. I know not all of us are going to be evangelists, but all of us are called to announce the good news of Jesus. The Spirit of God is putting someone on your heart right now that you need to witness to. Who is it that you need to encourage? Who is it that you need to tell about Jesus? Lord, I pray that you would put someone on our heart right now. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be a coworker. It could be the mechanic at the shop when we take our car to get repaired. It could be someone at the grocery store. It could be our insurance salesman. Whoever it might be, Lord. I pray that we would not keep silent what you have done for us. But like John the Baptist, we would announce the good news of Jesus. And for some of you, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You need to make a decision right now to follow Jesus. So I'm just going to ask you in your own way, in your heart, say a simple prayer like this. Just say, Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've walked selfishly. I've walked sinfully. And so today I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Today I repent of my sin. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a new direction today. I'm going to follow you. And from this day forward, I will live for you. Now with your heads bowed, eyes closed, no one's looking around. If you said that prayer, if you made a commitment to follow Jesus, maybe it's been a long time, maybe you did it as a kid. Maybe you just renewed that commitment. Maybe you've never done it. Would you just hold up your hand for a moment? If you said that prayer, you're like, I invited Jesus to be the Lord. Yes, I see a lot of young people's hands. That's awesome. Just hold it there. Yes, thank you. I see some adults too. Thank you. Praise God. And now for the rest of us, can we stand together? Everybody all around the room, we're going to have Pastor Sean lead out in some singing. I want us to take just a moment right here in this place to be bold, to be authentic in our worship to Jesus. He's done so much for us, hasn't he? His name is power. His name is healing. His name is life. So come on, let's speak the name of Jesus in this place today. Come on, let's sing it out now.